first couple of weeks, and that'll be awesome. So, April, red letters is our theme, and um, we started last week in an amazing start. I encourage you to get onto the podcast and have a listen to last week's kickoff of the red letter theme. We encourage you to bring your Bibles. Wave your Bible at me if you've got it here in the room with you. There's a few out there. We're encouraging you to bring your physical Bible because we live in a generation that just scrolls. There's something powerful about flicking, smelling, crinkling pages and going, oh, that's where the Gospel of Luke is. Um, And so it's red letters because the words of Jesus in some Bibles, in the second half of the Bible where Jesus is speaking in the New Testament, are actually in red. Not all Bibles are, but that's the theme, is we're looking at the words of Jesus. Okay, before Jesus came, the Old Testament was all that God's people had. Um, And then Jesus came and spoke, and Scripture tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and then the Word came and dwelt among us. The Message Version says that He moved into the neighborhood. I love that. He actually put on a garment of flesh. The Word, the living, breathing Word of God came in physical form and lived with us, and He spoke. So who knows that when God, the Word of God, becomes physical and then speaks, it's going to be pretty powerful. So we're looking at the words of Jesus. And so we're encouraging you to bring your Bible, to get into a habit of opening your Bible, um, scrolling through the Bible. And the point is, he does. He comes to us. He comes to us. And he comes to us in such amazing, specific ways. And I guess as I've been preparing for this morning, um, so much pressure around this topic, red letters. I thought it would be easy. But it's actually really difficult because can you put yourself in my shoes if I said, just preach anything that Jesus said? What do you pick? And what do you pick? Like everything's powerful. Um, And as I was, you know, looking through his words, one thing really startled me and really just took my attention. And it's the fact that his words were so tailor-made to every single individual and every person and every circumstance. He was so unique in his approach every single time. I realized that Jesus is predictably unpredictable. If there's one thing you can be certain of is that you should never be certain of anything with Jesus, as in his approach to you. Because he is so specific and he's so unique. He's unique. The way he speaks to us is unique to our personality, our season, our circumstance, our worldview. He speaks to us in a way that we understand. And the cool thing is, is that he could speak to you, Dave, today in a way that's specific to the fact that you've got a baby on the way you're working in a corporate job, you're on the plane several times a week and here serving on Sunday, for real. And, but that's different to the way he spoke to you when you were, you know, 19 years old and just hearing from him for the first time. He speaks to us so uniquely into our right now. And so this morning, the title of my message is, Come At Me, Jesus. Can you say that with me? Come at me, Jesus, all right? Because he comes at us in different ways. And his words come at us in different ways. So I pray that's your heart this morning is come at me, Jesus. Can you say it again? Come at me, Jesus. He's going to come at you in a unique and specific way every time. 
And so there are four different ways I want to look at this morning that Jesus approached people. Four, and there's many, many, many. There's no way I could cover them this morning. And in fact, I only covered three out of the four in the last service. So I'm hoping to do better in this service. Um, so welcome back if you've come back for point number four. Good on you. But um, I want to cover four different approaches, four different ways that Jesus spoke to people. And the first one that I guess I want to share with you is the fact that he's interruptible. Jesus is interruptible. And we should also be interruptible. Jesus was so discerning and sensitive. He was never so busy that he couldn't stop and pay attention to the person who was right in front of him. He was interruptible and he had that kind of margin in his life. The problem is often we don't have that sort of margin. Margin in our spirit, margin in our, in our life, margin in, in our approach to life and just even margin in our schedule that we're so busy. But Jesus was interruptible. And so we see this amazing story in Mark chapter 5 about this this moment, Jesus is usually interrupted on his way to doing something or in the middle of something. So he's teaching by the lake and there are crowds of people all around. And a synagogue leader named Jairus comes and falls at his feet, begging him to come back to his house because his 12-year-old daughter is dying. And you have to understand this is a big deal because the synagogue leaders weren't fans of Jesus. And so Jairus was actually risking his reputation, his credibility, his position. He was risking everything to come to Jesus, not only to come to Jesus, and he didn't do it in like a really pious kind of like postured way. He literally threw himself at Jesus' feet in front of his peers, in front of the crowd, because he was desperate. And when you're desperate, you're willing to risk everything. You're willing to take a risk. And I want to ask you this morning, church, how desperate are you? Because as long as you play it cool, you're missing out on the miracle that God wants to give you. There are too many Christians in church playing it cool and wondering why they're not living lives filled with power, filled with influence. I want to tell you, church, blow it with keeping it cool. We need to be desperate and we need to throw ourselves at the feet of God. You're playing it cool, guys. You should be like raucous right now. (laughs) he was desperate. How desperate are we? And so he says, please come to my house. I know, and he says in verse 23, that if you just lay your hands on her, she'll be healed and she'll live. He had this faith to know that. And so Jesus, he he stops what he's doing. He stops teaching and he's, he's interruptible. So he follows Jairus to his house. And now on the way, to Jairus' house, he gets interrupted again. And this woman approaches Jesus from behind. She approaches Jesus and Jairus from behind and touches his clothes because she's been sick for 12 years. And I think it's quite significant, all the coincidences in the Bible, the fact that Jairus' daughter was 12 years old and this woman has been sick for 12 years. I, I love the fact that these details are included. And I looked at the number 12. The 12 is significant in the Word of God. And for some reason, the same period of time that this girl's been alive, this woman's been sick. And Jesus is on a mission and gets interrupted by a woman who's been sick for 12 years. She's given all her money to doctors. She's only gotten worse. She's now living outside the city because she's unclean because of her condition. And she comes in and she says, I won't make a scene. I won't be noticed. 
And she says these powerful words to herself, if I just touch the hem of his garment, I know I'll be healed. And so she does. She comes up behind. She doesn't want to interrupt. But she touches the hem of his garment. And Jesus, because he's interruptible, stops. And it says he turns in the crowd. Can you imagine this scene? It says the crowds are thronging him. Some translations say they're crushing him. There are that many people around. And Jesus stops. He's busy. He's on his way to a dying young girl. And he stops and turns around and he says, who touched me? And his disciples are like, Jesus, everybody's touching you. What are you talking about? And he says, no, I felt the power go out of me. And I want to know who touched me. He knew. I've noticed that Jesus speaks to us in questions. He speaks to us in questions. Instead of putting words in our mouth, often he'll ask us questions because questions allow us to confess. Questions allow us to speak something over our lives. Questions allow us to have a revelation of our own. Instead of being spoon-fed, we're having a revelation, we're confessing. And so Jesus asked, who touched me? He knew who touched him. He knew exactly what was going on, but he was waiting for her confession. And when she wanted to be unseen, he said, daughter, I see you. And I want you to know that you may sneak in and out of church. I know you sneak in and out of church. I see you. God sees you. I want you to know you are not unseen. You are entirely known and valued and loved. And no matter how outcast or insignificant you may feel, you are seen. And God calls her out of the shadows. And she finally, it says in one of the translations, seeing that she could not go unnoticed. It's a beautiful place to come to. Seeing that I can't actually go unnoticed. She confesses what she's done and her situation and she speaks her healing out in front of this thronging crowd. And Jesus says this incredible thing to her. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Verse 34. Go in peace. Be healed of your affliction. Your faith. Those two red words frequent in the pages of the Gospels very often. Your faith. He often says your faith has given you your miracle because the onus is on us. It's not about, he doesn't go, my divinity, my power, my significance has made you well. He often says, your faith, according to your faith. Those two words happen over and over in scripture. The onus is on us. And so she's healed and she goes away, an amazing testimony. And so he continues on his way to Jairus' house and he's interrupted again, this time with bad news because some of Jairus' servants come and they say, Jairus, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter's passed away. It's no point. And Jesus says to Jairus, looks him square in the eye, and I pray the Holy Spirit is saying this to someone, do not fear, only believe. He has just heard the worst possible news. You know, we can skim over this and, and just skim over it. But he just heard his daughter had died. And Jesus looks him square in the eye and says, don't fear, only believe. And this is the thing that jumped out at me is the fact that Jairus interrupted him and Jesus interrupted him right back. And so we interrupt Jesus, don't we? We interrupt him asking him for a miracle and then he interrupts us back. Are you willing for him to interrupt your fear? 
Are you willing for him to interrupt you in that moment of doubt and go, excuse me, you really want this miracle? We have to also be interruptible because then he arrives at the house and there's this dramatic spectacle going on. People are wailing and crying and carrying on. And Jesus, red letters, he says, why do you make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Come on, church. She is dead in the physical. Hello? But I love that Jesus' perspective is never the same as reality. Church, it's never the same as reality. Jesus' perspective is always way out of reality. Totally unrealistic. That's faith. (laughs) That's the world of the Spirit. There's always more than what meets the eye. And he interrupts the drama. He interrupts the faith and he interrupts the drama. Will you allow Jesus to interrupt your drama? Enough with the drama. She's not dead. She's just asleep. Jesus, you're crazy. Yes, he's crazy. And faith is crazy. Faith is not logical. She's not dead. She's just asleep. And his perspective is so different. He goes in, verse 41, takes the child by the hand and says to her, Talitha Kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Arise. And he wants to speak into those dead situations in your life. They're not dead. They're just asleep. And I'm interrupting. I'm now interrupting you. I'm interrupting your resignation and your passivity and saying, get up. Get up, get up, and she gets up. So as well as being interruptible, he's also the great interruptor. He interrupts our willingness to hide in the crowd, like the woman. He interrupts our our fear, our drama. He interrupts our sleeping, our resignation. He calls us out of the crowd and to rise up. He's interruptible, and he's also the great interrupter. To the interrupting woman, he said, I see you, you matter, and you are deserving of more than you think. To the interrupting synagogue ruler, he said, hey, delay is not denial. And delay is not detrimental. I'm on my own timeline here. Delay is not detrimental. And to them both, he said, remain interruptible to me. And so while Jesus is interruptible, he seemingly happenstance goes with the wind. I notice that he's also masterfully intentional. He is so intentional. A few years ago, uh, on our day off, Sam and I decided, we had two of our small children with us that day, that we would go to the beach and have fish and chips just for a casual, quiet, relaxing day off for lunch. And so we had made these plans to do this. When the day finally came in true Queensland style, it rained randomly. It was blue sky in the morning and then like thunderstorm at lunchtime. And so that was like, oh, well, we're not really going to go to the beach in the rain. So we hung around home and a couple of hours later it started to clear out. It was still cloudy, but it was no longer raining. So we agreed well, let's just go. Otherwise, we're going to end up spending a whole day at home. So we went, and we went down to the water. Uh, Sam was with the kids in the playground while I went to the fish and chip shop to place an order. 
So I placed our order and I sat out the front with my number, waiting for my number to be called. And just as I sat down, I heard a voice behind me. And it was a young woman, you know, in her early 20s. And she said, excuse me, are you Carolina? And I turned around and I said, yes, I am. At which point she burst into the ugly cry. The snot cry. The ugly cry. And, and I was just like, okay. So I walked over and sat down with her. And after a few moments, I asked her what's going on. And she's just shaking her head, doing the ugly cry. Trying to, you know what it looks like. Trying to, <laughs> trying to pull herself together so she could formulate a sentence. She just said, I can't believe it's you. I can't believe he sent you. I'm like, what do you mean? She went on to tell me that this was a Monday afternoon at 3 p.m. She went on to tell me that Sunday night, the night before, her husband had just found out the affair that she'd been having. And he asked her to leave. So her and her husband were worship pastors in a church and she'd been having an affair that he just found out about. Two weeks prior, she had come into a service that I happened to be on the platform in and living in this state that she was in, she was, it was her last ditch effort to get her life right was the way she kind of described it to me. And she said to God, if you're real, I want to speak with her. And after the service, she couldn't find me. So she walked out of the service and just basically fist in the air, I'm done with you, God. You're not real. So here she is two weeks later, everything's hit the fan and she's out. She went to work that morning, a mess. The boss sent her home, asked her to leave work because she was in no state to work. And here she is at 3 p.m. at the fish and chip shop I intended to be at at 12. She said, I can't believe he sent you. I was sitting here and I asked him one more time, if you're real, please, anything, and then you show up. And she's doing the ugly cry. And I said to her, you know what, I, this is amazing, and God does do this. This is very, very significant. And I'm going to call you to account so that we can both be diligent with this. You're going to sit with me in my church every service with your Bible, taking notes and your hands in the air until we get this right. And she did. And she was with me morning and night for several months. Eventually, her hands went from here to here to here, <laughs> taking notes. And, you know, months later, she was reconciled with her husband. They're back in ministry. They have a child many years yeah. later. Yeah. It's an amazing story. Yes. Yeah. God is intentional. Yeah. He is so intentional. A thunderstorm would keep me away for three hours so that I could be there for her at the answer to her prayer. God is so intentional. And we find this in, um, in John chapter 4, the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And Dave did a brilliant job preaching this last week, so make sure you have a listen to it. But it says there in, in John 4, verse 3 and 4, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, verse 4, but he needed to go through Samaria. The point is that he didn't need to go through Samaria. Actually, he needed to avoid Samaria because Samaritans and Jews were enemies and every Jew went around Samaria. No Jew went through Samaria. And he's a Jewish rabbi who needed to go through Samaria to make the situation even more pointed is the fact that she was a woman living in sin 
Okay, in those days, men and women didn't publicly interact, let alone a Jewish rabbi with a Samaritan woman living beneath the moral code. And here it says Jesus needed to go through Samaria because he's intentional. Because he's intentional. He's not just interruptible and happenstance. He is masterfully intentional. And so here she is. He, he asks her to draw some water out of the well. And she starts talking to him. She's understanding he shouldn't even be there or talking to her. He starts talking to her about living water, which she, you know, in a desert nation sparks her attention. What are you talking about? Then he starts talking to her about her life. Oh my goodness, I don't know if you're just way more holy than me, but when Jesus spoke to me about where I was at, I felt the sting of that. And he said to her, hey, bring me your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. He's like, you're right, you've had five, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. She's like, I perceive you're a prophet. Your perception is very perceptive. Well done. And so... They start, he's suddenly telling her everything about her life. Jesus will do that. Jesus will do that. He'll touch you right in the deepest parts of yourself. He comes intentionally and he speaks right into who we are. And she suddenly realizes so much about what's going on and she starts asking Jesus, how do I actually connect with this God? And he starts talking to her about worship. And actually, my message was going to be all about worship until Dave stole my message last week. Because he says in, in you know, verses 21 to 24, he explains to her that it's not about who's right and wrong, who has the right doctrine and who has the wrong doctrine. It's not about the Samaritans versus the Jews and who's the better followers. Because he says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem to worship the Father. And verse 23, but the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What he's saying is, I don't mind who you are, where you've come from, what your worldview is. As long as you actually worship me in spirit and truth, you are one of my children. And he says that to us today. Hey, I've gone out of my way. I've come to your Samaria. I'm speaking right into your life. And where you've come from and what your worldview is means nothing if you worship in spirit and truth in spirit and truth. And that's what our churches should be full of, people who worship in spirit and in truth. And he goes on and he says, he says to her, she's like, well, I know that there's a Messiah coming. The scripture tells us there's a Messiah coming. And he says to her, the one who speaks to you now, I am he. Okay, church, this is the first time in his ministry that he reveals his divine identity. She is the first person that he reveals himself to. A Samaritan woman living beneath the moral code. She's like, whoa. She leaves her water pot, goes back to the city. She says to everyone who will hear her, you need to come and see this guy. He told me everything I've ever done. Come and see this guy. The whole city comes out hears Jesus and believes on him that day. He had to go to Samaria for Samaria. 
and Samaria was going to be changed by one person. And I want to tell you something. When God has gotten a hold of your life, you cannot keep quiet about it. I want to tell you that he'll go after the one, and one person ruined by Jesus will change a city. I'm not just saying that. Because I truly believe that if your gospel isn't touching other people, it hasn't truly touched you. The gospel will change your life. It is something you can't keep to yourself. No matter how ashamed and filthy you feel, you're going to run back and tell everyone, you need to meet this Jesus who just met me. And so the whole city was transformed. Jesus is intentional. He goes after the one. He goes after the one and look out because these are the most influential kinds of people. And the next approach I found is quite hilarious to watch happen to others, but hugely uncomfortable when it happens to us. <laughs> it's very entertaining to watch it happen to someone else, but awful when it happens to you. As I read through the red letters, I found that Jesus was so offensive. He is so offensive. He is insulting. And so I've learned in life, as a Christian, that we have to be bulletproof if we're going to make it through. We have to be unoffendable. Because offense stunts our growth and it limits our potential. Offense is something that robs us. And so when the Holy Spirit touches an area of our lives that offends us, we have a choice to make. And it's entirely up to us which way we go. Because offense truly is this. It's just a sign of area of weakness in your life. Not the person who's offending you. You. It's an area of weakness in your own life. And it is critical for you to deal with that in order to move on. In order to grow. And so there are some red letters that I actually just need to read to you because they're absolutely unbelievable. Matthew 15, verse 22. And behold, a woman of Canaan. So Canaan was a non-Jewish region. So she was not a part of God's people. And we see Jesus constantly breaking down this mindset. She was a woman of Canaan and came from that region and cried out to him saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. He ignored her. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away. She cries out after us. Verse 24. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's saying to his disciples, Just wait. Just wait. So he's being rude, okay, but that's not actually his intention. And so he says, it's like he's like, just wait, just watch this. And she came to him and said to him, Lord, help me. Verse 26, but he answered and said, it's not good to take children's bread and throw it to the dogs. He's calling her a dog. He's maintaining for the sake of this moment this ideal that the whole group, everyone listening, maintains, that only the Jewish people are worthy of bread. And he's calling her a dog and that she's not worthy of the bread. He's insulting her. He's offending her. But that's not his heart. Watch this. 
I love this response. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Her response is amazing. Verse 28, Jesus answered her and said, Oh, woman, great is your faith. Let it be as you desire. And from that very moment, her daughter was healed. Jesus will tick you off. He will offend you on purpose to test your heart. Amen. Anyone know this to be true? Give me an amen. Two hands in the air. He will offend us to push us. Pressure causes performance or puncture. It's your choice. And he puts pressure on those tough areas of our lives to see whether we'll back away or whether we'll lean in. Because she had decided that Jesus had her answer. She came to him knowing that it wasn't politically correct for her to be there. She came to him desperate. She came to him knowing he had her answer. And then she didn't change her mind when he offended her. She didn't change her mind when it got uncomfortable, when it got awkward, when it got insulting. No, you have my answer and I'll take a crumb. You insult me, I'll come back at you with faith. And it was her faith that saw her daughter healed in that moment. Jesus didn't even need to go. I've definitely been there. God, I don't feel worthy. I don't feel worthy, but I'll take anything. And so when Jesus offends us, how do we respond? When he tells us something we don't want to hear, are we tough and humble or are we immature and prideful? How do we respond with humility, hunger, submission, when we know he has what we need? You know, I'm not a great counsellor. I'm not a great counsellor. I'm a good leader. I'm a good coach. I'm a good mentor. I'm a good leader of leaders. I'm not a good counsellor. A lot of people come to me and sit, it sounds like it's true. <laughs> a lot of people will come and ask to meet with me and I'll make time, I always make time and I've had to learn really to curb this part of myself because they'll say, I really want you to, to mentor me and help me grow and I've learned that just because someone says that doesn't mean they actually know what that means. Yep. <laughs> and that often... If I tell them something that they need to apply to help them grow, they don't like to hear what I've just said. And so I've had to learn very, you know, over time to very quickly discern in a conversation what someone actually is asking of me. Because a lot of people actually just want to be heard and validated and given a justification to keep nursing their wounds. I find that really difficult. I find it really difficult. And on the same token, I have people in my life who I intentionally go to and ask to point out my blind spots, knowing it's going to sting, knowing what they say is going to hurt, but it's what I need to hear in order to grow. The thing is, the thing about a blind spot is you can't see it. It's a blind spot. And so if you're self-diagnosing and you think you know what it is, it's not a blind spot. A blind spot is what you can't see. And so we meet with these people. I meet with three particular people who I ask this question of. What are my blind spots? One of them is my husband, Sam. 
If you want to know your blind spots, just ask your spouse and your in-laws. They'll tell you. <laughs> Another person is my boss, who is also my pastor. If you want to know your blind spots, ask your boss if you're up for it. They'll tell you if you want to keep your job. Ask your boss and ask him. And I ask a woman who's been in ministry longer than I've been alive and has seen all the ups and downs and ins and outs and pretty and ugly of ministry and still loves God and his people and speaks in faith. And I ask them, what are my blind spots? What is it that everyone else can see that I can't see? And don't hold back. And the sting is real. It's real. But it's what I need to grow. It's what I need to grow. You know, the truth hurts, but it also sets you free if and only if you apply it properly. So when Jesus makes us uncomfortable, I pray we respond with toughness, humility, and extreme submission like this woman. This woman who didn't change her mind when it got awkward. And his approach is so varied. At times, he will take the risk of offending us in order for us to grow. At other times, he'll draw us so close that we can hardly breathe. Sometimes he'll insult us, and other times he'll defend us from the ones who are throwing insults. And this perhaps is one of my most favorite truths about Jesus, is that he is intercepting in his approach as well. We see Jesus in John chapter 8, interrupted in the temple he's teaching. He's interrupted again, this time by religious pomp. Literally, he's teaching and a half-naked woman is thrown in front of him. And that's definitely an interruption. And they say to her, we've just caught her in the act of adultery. What are you going to do, Jesus? They're testing him. These religious leaders are testing them, testing him. And they say, you know, because the law says that if you commit adultery, you need to be stoned to death. That doesn't mean what it means today. It means people throwing heavy rocks at you until you die. So the law says, <laughs> just want to clarify. The law says that anyone caught in adultery has to be stoned to death, Jesus. What are you going to do with her? At this point, I'm asking, where's the guy? Right? And it says that he bends down and he starts drawing in the sand in the temple. And he's almost like ignoring the spectacle. And they insist, Jesus, like you have to pass judgment on her. Like you have to uphold the law. And he stands up and he says these amazing words. He says, so when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said, he who is without sin among you, let him throw her the, fir the first stone at her. And he crouches down again and he starts drawing again. And one by one, all these religious leaders, it says, drop their stones and leave. It says from the oldest to the youngest, until he's left alone with the woman. Now, I looked into this because everyone wants to know what he was writing in the sand. And we don't know what he was writing in the sand. Except that in those days, someone caught in sin was brought into the temple in front of a priest. And the priest would write down their name and their sin in the sand. It was part of the trial. And then they were sentenced and punished. So he could have been writing her name, Mary Adultery. Except that it was all the religious leaders who left. 
many scholars agree he was writing their names down. Sylvia, Sam, Hazel, and their sins in the sand. Many scholars believe it's a fulfillment of a prophecy in Jeremiah 17, verse 13. That anyone who rejects the living water, which Jesus had just called himself before he was interrupted, will have their name written in the sand and they will walk away. They all dropped their stones and walked away. He gets up and he says some of the most powerful words. He says, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Again, he's speaking to us in questions. She says, no one, Lord. And then he said to her, well, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Have you ever experienced this? I certainly have. When the whole world said I was unworthy, he stepped in and covered me. When everyone said I was despicable and unacceptable, he said I was amazing. When the whole world said to me, when my accuser said to me I was shameful and undeserving and deserving of punishment, Jesus stood in the gap and intercepted and said, no, let me remind you of your punishment, what's coming to you. He intercepted that judgment. Jesus intercepts every single time. And the cross is the greatest intercept of all time. Where he took on our judgment, it's what he does. He absorbs it. The beautiful thing is he calls it what it is. He says to the woman, go and sin no more. She's completely exposed. And I've definitely felt that where he sees me for the wretched thing that I am. And he makes no apologies for it. I see you. It's disgusting. But go and sin no more. I don't judge you for it. In fact, you're worth more than the way you're living right now. And I'm going to intercept all that judgment, all the insults, and I'm going to set you into a future that you didn't think you ever could have. He approaches us so uniquely, so specifically, so intimately. He knows exactly where you're at, exactly what you need. He knows every detail about your life and he longs for you to be in genuine spirit and truth relationship with him. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning? Holy Spirit, you're in this place. I ask that you'd have your way. I ask that you'd have your way. You may be here for the first time. I want to tell you, he's intentional. It's no mistake that you're here. He, he sent for you. Maybe, maybe you've been here for a little while. You got offended. He insulted you. You left in your back. Maybe you didn't leave, but your heart did. You know, whichever scenario it is, you're away from him. And this morning you're hearing him draw you back. It's not my words, it's the Holy Spirit. The word says that the Spirit of God brings us to a point of repentance. It's the Spirit of God that speaks to our hearts and convicts us and empowers us to make the right decisions. You know, I remember being in a room just like this, hearing a message about a God who loved me and just that concept was bigger than I could understand in my mind, but my spirit came alive. 
And the preacher offered an invitation to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of my life. And I want to tell you, responding to that decision was the greatest decision I've ever made. It doesn't come second to any decision I made before or since. Making Jesus the Lord and Savior of my life completely revolutionized who I am. My whole future. And so this morning, I want to offer you that invitation. If you want to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life, on the count of three, I'd love for you to raise your hand. I'm going to count to three. Raising your hand, no one's looking around. I'll see it. And it's just a sign between you, me, and God that you're responding. And you want today to be the day you make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life. So on the count of three, if that's you, raise your hand. One, God loves you. He thinks you're amazing. Two, he's not disappointed. He's not upset. He thinks you're incredible. There's nothing you've done that can separate him from his love, nothing that's been done to you that can separate you from his love. Three, if that's you, give me a wave in this place. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Amazing, amazing. Just wait one more moment. If that's you, give me a wave, I'll wait for you. You wanna make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life, give me a quick wave. Holy Spirit, Lord, you're so good. You're so, so good to us. Your voice is life to us. And so I thank you this morning that you've brought these precious ones home. Heaven's, the scripture says that heaven rejoices when even one comes back. And this morning we celebrate with heaven. Father, we know that you go after the one. You leave the 99 to go after the one. And this morning you've brought them back. Father, I thank you that in this moment, a moment of repentance where we come into an acknowledgement of God, I've done this on my own and it's got me this far, but I know I want want you as my Lord. I want you as the center of my life. This moment of repentance of God, I'm sorry for doing it the way I've done it, that everything changes, that in this moment we become sons and daughters of the Most High God. In this moment, you set us at the place at the table that you'd always had waiting for us. You adopt us into your family. Lord, that this moment, the scripture tells us that you wash us white as snow. You cleanse us. The old has gone and the new has come. I thank you for this moment of rebirth. And Lord God, I ask for your beautiful hedge of protection around each of one of us in this decision that we make. Father, an empowerment to live beyond the way we've lived in the past. Thank you that that's grace. Grace is there to be saved. Grace is also there to live. In Jesus' mighty name, I thank you for salvation. Amen. Let's give them a round of applause. Thank you, God.